I am very excited to announce that the Folly Coffee Hot Sauce Kickstarter has been successfully funded. We have created a new stretch goal with some awesome free rewards if we hit that stretch goal, as well as a brand new reward offering. Hint, Folly Coffee Barbecue Sauce. Check it out, follycoffee.com slash kickstarter. Don't wait. Hey, this is Rob, and this is episode 60 of the Folly Coffee Podcast. Let's get it brewing. Right. Here's the weird part where you're right in front of me, but I'm just going to introduce you. I'm here with Justin Sutherland. If you're from the Twin Cities, you likely know the face. Partner at Madison Restaurant Group, uh, most famous for probably Handsome Hog, but you got Oxcart Rooftop, 2018 winner of Food Network's Iron Chef, Top Chef competitor. Was that 2019? I was. Co-founder of the North Stands, which is a recent awesome project you've been working on uh, with COVID closures. And... Somehow, through all of this, co-host of a new show called Fast Foodies on True TV. So, is it um, holograph technology or cloning <laughs> technology where you're able to be in 18 places uh, at once? Because whatever you're doing, I need that technology for myself. I don't know if you want it. It's a lot. Um, it's a lot of not not sleeping and just constantly moving. But uh, figure a way to get it done. Good teams too. I mean, obviously, don't do everything by myself. It's absolutely wild to see how much your name has been popping up lately. And I want to get to like everything I just highlighted here, but we know each other very like briefly mm-hmm. kind of through passing through Brian over at Hope Breakfast Bar. And I don't really know a heck of a lot about like your story because right. I, I met you when, you know, past all of your top chef competitor after your Iron Chef winning. And so by that time, you're kind of like, you know, quote unquote, a public figure, especially in the Twin Cities. So I am really interested in hearing like where you got your start. How did you get to where you are? Because I think sometimes I look at someone and just go, oh, he's Justin Sutherland. He's always been Justin <laughs> Sutherland. And then you, and then the more I've realized with this podcast is you go, oh, everybody's got like really cool story. And it's like, I love hearing the background. And that's why I really want to hear about how you got to where you are right now. It's insane. Uh, yeah, it is. It, I mean, looking back on it, it is pretty insane. Um, very unconventional. I mean, coming into cooking story, I mean, it was never... Never thought I was going to be a chef. It was never the, you know, the uh, career path for sure. Um, always loved food. Uh, grew up in the kitchens with both my grandmothers. Um, got a grandma from Japan, um, another grandma with roots from Mississippi. It's so a lot of Southern soul food, but I was just always the kid in the kitchen, you know, watching them cook and just loving food. Um, but my whole life, I thought I was going to be a lawyer, maybe an actor. Those were like the two top things. Uh, I went to business school down at MSU in Mankato for business management. Um, then was going to start law school and... Spent about six months selling mortgage uh, in the break after college, getting ready for law school, sitting in an office, doing research and cold calls and all this shit. And I remember just calling my dad, being like, "I, I am not an office guy. There's if this is what five more years of law school." I can't even picture that. <laughs> like just, just knowing what I know about you right. and having interacted with you, I can't picture you behind a desk working mortgages. Yeah, it was uh, it was brutal. Um, and then yeah, that's when he suggested he was like, "You've always you always loved food. You've always loved cooking." Uh, I want you to try culinary school, and if that doesn't work out, you can always, you know, always go back to get your business degree. You can always go back to law school, but try something else before you drive yourself crazy. So how soon into that mortgage job did you realize that you're like, <laughs> oh, shit, <laughs> I messed up here? Right? I mean, you know, I enjoyed putting a tie on, you know, it was a nice go, but I just, yeah, that office work, and I just I do not have that, you know, type A personality to just sit and... 
Yeah. I don't know if any human naturally does. I think anybody that does that probably finds a way to make it work. And so from there, you have the conversation with your dad. If I remember correctly, you went down to uh, Atlanta for culinary school. Yep. How did you choose choose Atlanta as the location to go? Uh, I mean, a few ways. Wait. Um, one was really just looking for somewhere where it didn't snow. <laughs> so, you know, I started, started looking for culinary schools and I was like, all right, it's a chance to, you know, move for a little bit. So let's skip some winters. Um, you know, back in the early 2000s, Atlanta was a uh, pretty, pretty happening place to be, you know, for a young guy too. So it just, you know, kind of worked out. What's the application process like? Because, I mean, at that point, you really didn't have any professional culinary experience. What's the process like to apply for a culinary school with no previous experience? Uh, nothing. That's how they. That's how they'd prefer. <laughs> they'd prefer you. <laughs> Culinary schools really just want your money. No, fair enough. But yeah, I mean nothing. I mean you'll you know go through the apply and generally accepted. What's your next step after you finish culinary school? Uh, stayed down in Atlanta for a while. Um, actually, almost a little over four years. Um, just loved it down there. Uh, helped open a couple of restaurants and kind of first really real cooking jobs were down there, and then realized it was time to come home. And at that point, while you're in Atlanta cooking. What was your like culinary style? Do you even to this day do you consider yourself like you have a specialty style, or do you have any favorites that you like to focus on, or how did you kind of uh, approach cooking while you're down in Atlanta to when you moved back up to here? Yeah, I mean honestly, I didn't really have a style. I just knew I loved to eat, and I loved it. You know, I loved trying new things. I loved exploration, but there was never like a strong base. Uh, you know, aside from the family food. I mean, coming from the Midwest, I mean we were very. You know, meat and potatoes, you know, Minnesota, you know, comfort food. Grew up on a lot of that. Um, Grew up on a lot of Japanese food with my grandmother and a lot of soul food with my other grandmother. So, I mean, those were the foods that I had embedded in me, but I was just there to to take it all in and learn. And when you moved back to Minnesota, did you have like a vision for where you wanted to go with your career? Did you have a vision of what you wanted to do in food? No, not at all. Um, (laughs) Not at all. Um, I just, you know, like I just remember... Especially, you know, I was young coming up, like standing next to some of these just badass cooks that were just like, you know, they were just like these pirates to me. I just knew that I wanted to, like, they just moved so fast. They had burns and cuts all over their arms and nothing, you know, they were never hurt and, you know, drinking whiskey and smoking cigarettes and never <laughs> sleeping and just, see you know, these, these old school badass chefs and line cooks just seemed like these just invincible, you know pirates and I was like I want to be I want to be like them (laughs) (laughs) it's a really good way to put it actually when you say pirate you go that that is literally like what I picture when I picture a line cook like someone who's accidentally resting their hand on the stove and you're like dude your hand and like oh yeah (laughs) wrap some duct tape on it we're good where did you land when you uh, moved back home ah I kind of bounced around all over when I first came back home um met up with David Fema um and you know did some work for him opened a lot of restaurants with him um starting um where I really wanted to work uh, was Meritage in St. Paul. Mm. That was, I mean, it still is, but I mean, at the time it was, you know, one of our best fine dining restaurants around, especially in St. Paul where I was from. So it was always my goal. I applied there many times um, without getting the job and, and finally ended up getting a job at Meritage. Um, and that's probably the first place that I really, really got my ass kicked, really like fell into a, you know, French brigade, uh, you know, real fine dining, badass chef system. Um it was it was awesome and horrible and terrifying. And <laughs> for someone not in the food world, yeah. what is your definition of getting your ass kicked when you say you get your ass kicked uh, going into Meritage? I mean, I mean, just really walking in there realizing that I knew absolutely nothing. Mm. You know, I was able to to fake it through and limp through some other jobs, but I mean, you know, that's a that's a hardcore badass kitchen. And I mean, every single day, probably about the first two years, I thought I was going to get fired. Every I was like, terrified to go to work. I just knew that I wasn't going to quit. 
and I was just going to keep trying to figure it out. But it was, yeah, it was tough. What were the biggest difference between the kitchens you'd been in and being there? Uh, I, you know, the, the volume versus quality of food. I mean, that place Mm -hmm. just pumps out, you know, some of the best food in the, in the state, um, just at an extremely high volume with, you know, a tiny kitchen and just very, very high expectations. And so at what point do you go from being in Meritage, getting your ass kicked for like, first of all, two years yeah. every day yeah. going into work worried right. about, that's insane. Like, like people wouldn't talk to me. Nobody knew my name. Like it was just oh. like I walked, it was just that like I was the bottom of the lowest on the totem pole. That's kind of like the be. French thing though, oh, right? Oh, 100%. And, yeah, you know, they wouldn't, I didn't even know if I cooked anything for the first year. Like I was in the back peeling potatoes and onions and scooping ice cream for dessert. Like, <laughs> and you should be honored to do so. These right. potatoes that you're peeling, you're just lucky to have graced them before they land on the plate of the customer. And by the way, they suck. You did it horrible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll use them because we have no other option. But if we right. did. <laughs> so two years of going in, worrying about getting fired every day. How does that lead to you ending up on Iron Chef. I mean, I think just really sticking it out at Meritage. I mean, I spent five years there with Russell, and Damn. you know, I started like I said, bottom of the totem pole, scooping ice cream in the back kitchen for two years, um, and ended up getting promoted to sous chef, and you know, just like working my way up the line, and then finally was uh, sous chef at Meritage, and then Russell went and opened his new restaurant, Brasserie Central, in uh, downtown Minneapolis, and brought me over there to be one of the opening chefs of that restaurant. So really, just. Worked my way up from the dish pit to becoming a, a chef at a great restaurant. Um, when you got named sous chef, had you shifted from worrying about getting fired to knowing you're going to become sous chef at that point? Yeah, I think, <laughs> I think when I about a year and a half in, when I realized Russell actually knew my name, um, I was like, all right, maybe this will work out. <laughs> he just nodded at me one day. I, th- I go, I think I'm not getting fired I think I'm today. Not getting this fired is today. good. Um, yeah, and so I mean that that was kind of the progression here. Um, Stayed at Zentral for, you know, the first, you know, they unfortunately closed early just for a lot of horrible des- location stuff and whatnot. But about, excuse me, um, probably about two years into Zentral, I had this weird, uh, I just had this weird, like, quarter-life crisis moment. <laughs> like, I was, I had just, I got in a really, really bad car accident that, like, I walked out of completely unscathed. But, ev- I mean, everybody looked at the car and was like, I have no idea even how I'm. I mean, literally just walked out of it and my car was just crumbled. And I was like, what the fuck? And I had like a really bad breakup with a girlfriend that year. Um, I had spent the last five years just getting my ass completely kicked. And then finally, like, got to the place that I thought I wanted to be. And I was like, is this really what I want? I'm just working more hours, (laughs) no more more money and blah, blah, blah. Um, So I ended up just selling all my shit and (laughs) calling my parents and telling them and bought a one-way ticket to Costa Rica. (laughs) Literally, I was like, I don't know what I would do. Why but Costa Rica? I, I mean, everybody, I don't know. Everybody I talked about <laughs> said, like, Costa Rica was the place to go find yourself. I don't know. It was, um, yeah, I mean, it was cheap, and it was sound. I had never been, and everybody had definitely talked about Definitely not snowy. Definitely not snowy, and everybody had talked. I knew a lot of people that had spent some time down there and just loved it. That's sick. But it was, yeah, it was just a definite, like, I don't, I'm not going down a good path. I got to get the fuck out of here. Damn. What, how did you spend your time in Costa Rica? Uh, I mean, I ended up staying down there for almost eight months. I spent, spent about almost a year down there um, and pretty much, like, walked the entire country, like, from Belize through the Panama Canal. I took buses, walked. I spent – I found one little beach town in Costa Rica called Montezuma where I rented a little hostel for, like, $2 a day and <laughs> stayed there for, like, a month of it and I just completely by myself. So you're there for eight months. 
what leads to you wanting to come back? When you left there, it's a one-way ticket, so presumably you don't really have an end in sight or like a goal right. end date. Right. What drives you that when you get to that point of eight months that you're like, all right, it's time to come back? Because at this point, you've gotten in a car crash. That you're, and those moments are crazy where you're like, I shouldn't be here. Right. And then bad breakups. I, you know, we know how those can go. And yep. So you're down there. At what point does it turn that you say, I'm here for eight months. I'm, I'm rolling back home now. You know, I think it was, I mean, it was very gradual. I mean, when I first got there, I mean, I absolutely fell in love with it. And I was like, I'm never going home. <laughs> I'm staying here forever. Um, you know, and then after the, you know, after the vacation aspect of it, you know, wears off. And then you're like, all right, well, now I'm living here. Let's, you know, at least, you know, got to have some sort of purpose. You know, read a lot of books, did a lot of writing, um, which kind of reflected upon what I wanted to do. I still knew that I loved cooking. I mean, I ate a lot of food down there and tried a lot of different stuff. Um, and just really tried to figure out what, what I wanted out of that career, you know, before I came back. Um, and I really, yeah, I think I knew I wanted to run something myself. I think I had spent, you know, a lot of time working for a lot of different people. I'd learned a lot of what not to do and a lot of what to do. Uh, and I knew I just wanted to kind of be my own boss and open my own restaurant. So it was, what did your friends and family think? <laughs> uh, yeah, my parents thought it was crazy. Um, they're like, like, we're not sending you any money. So you <laughs> no. and you're like, it's good. It's $2 um, a day. I'll be all right. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, and I honestly just, I didn't really tell tell that many people. I literally just ghosted. Isn't that funny that you can do that, that <laughs> in this age where everybody has to announce every little right. thing, you're like, I just had lunch. You're like, I'm going to Costa Rica. I don't know when I'm coming back. back. Bye. Yep. Yep. <laughs> so you, at the eight month mark, you move back. What's it like being back? Do you, do things feel different or do you have a different mindset now that you've kind of spent this time developing, writing, reading? What, like, what are your moves when you get back? Yeah. I mean, that was really where I started writing the, uh, the business plan for Handsome Hog, um, the space that it was currently in used to be Bin Wine Bar, um, and it was one of my, I just loved the location. It was small. It was intimate. It was like the restaurant that was kind of like my dream size of restaurant. Um, so it kind of was in the back of my head told me, like, if that place closes, that's going to be, you know, where I want to do something. Uh, so while I was gone, Bin ended up closing, um, came back home with this idea for this kind of restaurant concept. And then when I came back into Lower Town and saw Bin had closed, I was like, oh, this is fate. It closed. I lose so no, lost good. <laughs> um, you know, I was like, oh, maybe it's fade. Been closed. I think I got my shit together. I kind of have an idea. Uh, let's go for it. What steps do you take to be able to get it open? Because there's so many things that go into the planning and launching of a restaurant. Right. You've got the business plan. Where do you take that to be able to even have like the the funding, the the backing, the ability to be able to open a restaurant? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's very. It's definitely not easy. Uh-huh. Um, you know, and I mean, at that point, I didn't really know what I was doing. I kind of did, you know, I was researching stuff and putting stuff together and, you know, asking questions. But I mean, the first step was just to find out what, you know, trying to get that space mm-hmm. and, you know, get that secured first. So, you know, called the called the realtor number on the building and, you know, did the whole walkthroughs of the space and went through that process. And then um, the realtor was like, well, the building owner would like to meet you and find out what kind of concept you're putting in there. So went and did my pitch to the owner and they had the owner of the building itself and he asked if I had, you know, how how far along on um, financing were we? I said, not not very at all. This is like step one. And he was like, well, I, you know, I love your idea. If you don't, you know, if you need an investor, you know, I, I, I'd be happy to, you know, to finance it. So that's where that's how the first one happened. Damn. <laughs> how long did it take to get it up and running? Uh, it was just about a year. Okay. Yep. Maybe a little, yeah, maybe a little bit more. Was it what you expected? Uh, I mean, yes and no. I mean, it was, yeah, there was a lot that I expected, a lot that I didn't know. I mean, you think, 
there's just so much stuff, you know, embedded in business and restaurant that you don't, you know, you don't, it doesn't even cross your mind yeah. until you're actually doing it. And you're like, shit, I forgot about that part. I was like, um, I, I always hear the advice, like, uh, it's going to take twice as long as you expect and three yep. times as much as you spend. And you're like, okay, well, I'll just make out a plan where I give myself twice as much amount of time and build three times the budget. And then somehow it's, it's still more. is more after the end of that. Always. What was the reception like for Handsome Hog when you opened? Like, how'd you get the word out? Uh, I mean, it was great. I, we, I mean, surprisingly did very, very well. Um, I don't know if surprisingly, but I don't know, just a lot of, you know, if it was, it was my city. I mean, I've you know, always been a St. Paul guy. It was my neighborhood and it was small enough that it was a neighborhood place. And so it was very supported just, you know, by the community initially. Um, yeah, and was, and was going awesome. And then got the, the Iron Chef phone call came after about year one of Handsome Hog randomly. And that's when things really started to take off. So they called you up. Yeah, I, I still at first I thought I was getting. I mean, I thought I was getting punked. I mean, at this point, I mean, I you know I worked around. To, nobody knew who I was. I didn't you know my first restaurant or year one you know limping along. Um, but yeah, I got a phone phone call on my cell phone. He said it was a producer from um, Food Network, and they'd been kind of following my career and asked if I wanted to be on Iron Chef. And I mean, I didn't. I thought I was getting punked. I was like, all right, somebody's fucking with me here. Like, well, <laughs> yeah, you're like, why are you calling me? Um, so I was like, all right, well, email me and was waiting for more like official stuff to come through. And I was like, oh, this is for real. You're like checking the email signatures, right. like cross-referencing with websites, like who's contacting right now. Well, nope. I have to say, I did have uh, my buddy up was from Atlanta in for a wedding yeah. and he was staying right around there. And I was like, if you want some really good barbecue, and he's like, really good barbecue, Rob, we're in St. <laughs> Paul, Minnesota. Like, come on. I was like, no, for real. Like actually though. And yeah. he went and he's like, damn, you were right. Awesome. <laughs> so, like, that's, that's always a sick word because there's, I think people have a conception about Minnesota oh, for sure. when they think about it. I mean, I probably look the part today wearing a red flannel, <laughs> right. but like you, you tell someone up to Minnesota yep. and like barbecue would be the first thing from the mind. And then, so when you do go to a place that's really killing it, it's awesome to see. And What's the scene in the Twin Cities been like as a chef? Is it because um, you came from kind of the French style at Meritage mm-hmm. uh, with like the really cutthroat, like we're being an asshole is kind of like mm-hmm. uh, you've earned it kind of thing. Right, right. What was it? Did you carry that on to Handsome Hog or what was your approach within the Twin Cities like network of chefs and people within the restaurant industry? No, I think it's I mean, over probably the last, you know, 15 or so years. I mean, it's it's evolved a lot. I mean, I think when I first was observing it, you know, before I was a chef and just kind of what I knew. I mean, we had our, you know, four or five kind of top figurehead, you know, chefs in the in the cities and in the area, but it, it did seem like it was very competitive and, and cutthroat and, um, you know, you were either like on this guy's team or this guy's team and it was very much like, oh, I work here, I work here. And, the, and I think over the course of the last 10 years, I mean, I've seen it turn into something I haven't seen anywhere else. I mean, we have an amazing very tight-knit, you know, community of chefs. Everybody's helping each other out. We do pop-ups and events together. And um, so it's evolved and changed quite a bit, I, I think, in a good way. I think the new kind of generation of, of you know, chefs and names that are coming up have, have really made an effort to just kind of change the stigma all around, you know, that kitchen culture. And th- that's the coolest part is, like, you know, just going to, like, Nile and Yu's pop-up that a right. couple of weeks ago, and I walk, and I was like, oh, you're here? And you yeah. look around, you're like, oh, I think I know half the people right. at this pop-up right now. And it's such a special thing, especially in the Twin Cities. When I was talking earlier about people look at Minnesota and you don't think about it in a particular way if you're not from here. Yep. And so I, I feel like chefs have really embraced that, that it's like, hey, the, if we're all doing better work, it's mm-hmm. going to help everybody and we're going to become known for this and yep. start to build a name for ourselves, which is really cool to see. And that, that pop-up was like this huge light bulb moment. I was like, yeah. well, first of all, I think everybody knows <laughs> everybody. everybody. <Yeah. laughs> that was the crazy part yeah. because like, 
this podcast has revealed that for sure. Yep. It's like I meet one person, and then I was like, oh, I had so and so, and they're like, oh yeah, no, I know all those people. Right. You're like, that's great, but the the not, not lack of competition, but like the lack of animosity about it. Of course, I think everybody just realized, you know, that we all do better when we all do better. I mean, there's no, you know, it's a difficult enough industry as it is. We should all kind of be on each other's team. There's yeah. no reason to, you know, to to compete. There's enough people out there that need to eat. So. So once you figure out this Iron Chef call is not a prank call, <laughs> right. how quick of a turnaround is it from them saying, we want you to be on the show, to going and competing? I would think it was probably three-ish, three months or so, three or four months or so. Of How how ready were you for that? Extremely. I mean, we yeah. once we, so I mean, we got to, I got to pick, you get to pick your own sous chef. So, you know, I brought Donald Gonzalez and Brandon Randolph, both of have been my chefs at some of my other restaurants. So we all worked well together. Um, but we spent... Um, had probably about a month. I mean, the month leading up at that time, Octo Fish Bar wasn't open for lunch. Um, they did dinner service only, so we'd asked him if we could use their kitchen, just kind of as our training ground. And we every single day for a month straight, from eight a.m. to two p.m., we just pr- practiced and everything. And I mean, because you don't know what it is. Yeah, I was going to say, how do you practice for oh, it? The biggest thing that's what we said. We we're like, how do you, how do you <laughs> practice for this? I mean, the strategy we came up with was let's figure out everything that combined we like every skill combined that we know how to do and let's start doing them as fast as we can and timing yourselves and figuring out what we can't do we need to eliminate like there's no way we're gonna be able to accomplish this um or this is something that we absolutely want to do like i knew i wanted to make homemade ramen i wanted to make ramen noodles i wanted to make ramen live in an hour on tv um which was insane um but the first time that I made it. It took 47 minutes, and by day 30 of making it, we got it made in nine minutes. So, Damn. <laughs> I mean, so it was just, like, developing that muscle memory and just not even, you know, being able to do these things without even thinking. When talking with the other chefs that were on the show, that sounds like an insane amount of work to be practicing from 8 a.m. to 2 p.m. every day for a month to get these skills down. Yep. In talking with other chefs that were competing, did you find that other people were doing the same thing? Uh, I think, I mean, I think everybody kind of had their own you know, had their own styles and systems of what they could do. Um, I almost yeah. picture chefs just being like, practice. Like, right. I don't need to, I don't, I don't need to worry about it. You know, this. I mean, that the biggest thing, it wasn't so much the practice, because even half, once once it started, I mean, half the stuff goes out, you know, goes out your mind. So the biggest thing was just developing that muscle memory, realizing, like, you're not going to have time to think. I mean, that hour, that hour's real, and everything that happens is, is, is I mean, it's, it, when I go back and watch it, I still, like, it's insane. I'm like, how, I don't think I could do it again. <laughs> like, I look at that menu, I'm like, how the fuck do we do that? <laughs> so you end up winning. What's the turnaround time from winning it, airing, or uh, winning t- winning it, and then it actually airs and people, like, yeah. it, it's everywhere? Uh, it was at least, I would say, six to eight months, I mean, from winning it to airing. And you have to least. keep it so secret during that time? Oh, yeah, I had to sign a, sign a $5 million non-disclosure and, and keep it's it casual. secret for uh, almost eight months. What is that feeling like? Knowing that's a that's a weird feeling to think about. Knowing there's something that's going to be huge right. that you know about that right. you can't tell anyone about six to eight months away. What is that period of time like? Are you planning for this to come out? Like putting things in place so that when it comes out, you can kind of take advantage of like the the eyes that are going to be on you and your team. How how do you? even prepare for that six months knowing that like right. hey i'm about to get pretty well known in the twin at least in the twin cities on an and end on a na- national scale right yeah it was uh, it was pretty surreal i mean you know the first month it was still i mean i'd call brandon every day and be like dude do you do we, do we just win wire and chef <laughs> it was still like it was like did that happen or, that, you know? um so i mean after that first just initial like wow this just happened then it was shit it's really hard to not tell anybody 
Um, but yeah, I mean, it was preparing and, you know, I've, you know, never being a public figure, or, you know, outside of your immediate community. I mean, it's kind of hard to wrap your hand around. So, you know, hired a, a, a pub PR company, um, you know, to help prepare for that and just manage. I mean, you know, the day after there is every news outlet in the world's calling and everybody wants an interview and every TV show and just to, you know, so knowing that it was going to come and just getting a. Could, could you tell the the PR person that yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you signed something with them? Yeah. <laughs> I picture going to a PR agent and you're like, hey, um, six months from now, you're going to be really busy, but I can't tell you <laughs> right. why, but it's a big deal. No, we're allowed, you're allowed to tell them in your, okay. your inner circle. Okay, that makes more sense then. Yep. So, so news comes out, you're getting all these calls. What's it like then after in terms of like handsome hog because at this point you're, you're still you're in the kitchen you're still running a restaurant right. but now you've got this whole public facing side that you're getting blown up how did you manage your time and the moves that you made after that yeah i mean that time was probably the most new and the most difficult out of you know learning how to manage them both but yeah i mean i was still an active you know cook in the kitchen i was still on the schedule you know being the chef you know and then still trying to manage this other side but still you know solely focusing on the one restaurant that i had um so yeah, it was it was difficult. It was like I said, still surreal. I'd you know never had any real public notoriety, so having all this come in and then you know trying to keep in perspective, like all right, it's just you know one episode of this one show. Sure, you're gonna, it's going to be a big deal for a month and then it'll fizzle away. So don't you know don't invest too much into that because you know the, the restaurant is why you're here. Handsome Hog is why you're here. So make sure you're focusing on that because you know nobody nobody I you know I didn't have any expectations of anything coming after that. So. You know, it's like take up your your fifteen seconds of fame and suck it up and get whatever you can out of it, but make sure you don't forget what you got what got you there. That fifteen second seconds <laughs> continues into what later became Top Chef. How does that come about? So you you win Iron Chef, you are like, all right, awesome publicity now, but let's keep it grinding at that handsome hog and get it going. Yep. How does that lead to ending up being on Top Chef? Yeah, so one of the producers from I think it was one of the one of the yeah, one of the producers or uh, camera camera operators that was on um Iron Chef uh, after I had won and I was walking out, he leaned over and he was like, "You killed it." He said, "You will probably be expecting another phone call pretty soon." And then I was like, "Okay, cool. What does that mean?" And then sure enough, four, four months later, got a call from Bravo and they're like, "Somebody from uh, Food Network recommended you for Top Chef. You want to start that process?" And I was like, I guess, I mean, you don't say no to that. That's, <laughs> yeah. That's, that's one of the biggest cooking stages there is, so. How long does Top Chef filming go on? Because forever. That's what I was going to say, because, like, when you watch the show, it seems like it's fast and that it's not that long of a period of time, but then you realize how long it takes to film anything, let alone this, like, multi-week reality-style right. show. How long is that filming going on? And also... I would imagine that you have to be really secretive while you're on the show. What oh, yeah. kind of... It's... I mean, no, it is... First, it's, it's almost three months in total. Dang. I mean, yeah. So, I mean, the initial, we're gone for six weeks, straight six weeks, got to come home for two weeks, and then gone for another four or whatever. But, yeah, it was... I mean, almost three months in total. What? <laughs> what do you do before you leave to make sure... Because that's got to be stressful that you've got, you've got a restaurant. Like, it's uh, still at this point fairly new. Yep. And you're like, I'm about to be gone for the majority of three months. How do you handle that move and going out there? And then what's it like when you actually get there? Yeah, I mean, this, it was tough. So this, we were actually in the process um, of opening Pearl and the Thief when I got the Iron Chef call. So, I mean, we were rushing to get Pearl and the Thief open. So I was fully focused on that, which was kind of good. It kept my head out of, you know, over, over analyzing the, the uh, Top Chef situation. 
Um, but with all the construction days and everything, I kept watching the calendar come down. I had, you know, the date on the calendar I had to leave for, for Top Chef. And my only goal was to get Pearl open before I left. And that just didn't line up cards. So I was, I remember I was gone filming Top Chef when the restaurant had to open without me. So, you know, Brandon, the sous chef opened it and I wasn't even there. Um, so that's that a pretty was, good reason though. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. That's kind of, that's, that's kind of a, that's kind of a sick move to be able to do. You were like, yeah. Hey, Justin's not here. Oh, he's filming top chef. Right. You're like, Oh, okay. <laughs> but they, but there was back, but they couldn't tell anybody. Like I didn't, Oh, they could, people were like, well, how come the chef and the owner's not here? And they're young. I mean, we had, all oh, so you elaborate. couldn't even tell people you were on it yet. Oh no, there was, I mean, it's the, Oh, so it's the opposite of a sick move. Yeah. You're like, he's just not here. He's we can't tell here. you why. Just, yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I mean, that gives me so much anxiety. And this, I mean, this one is extremely uh, sequestered secret. I mean, no cell phones, computers. We couldn't read newspapers. We couldn't even have watches or calendars. We weren't allowed to know what time it was. So you have a restaurant that's opening while you're not there. You're not able to check texts. So you have a restaurant opening while you're gone, and you have no idea how it's going. Completely in the dark. That is absurd. (laughs) You can't talk to anybody. Are you able to, like figure out stuff when you're back for those two weeks at least of like yeah <laughs> oh of course yeah okay. and you got i mean it got down after it starts started with 17 people and then as you kind of whittled down once we got to 10 and you'd already been there for like a month and we got one once a week you could either do 20 minutes of emails or one 20 minute phone call <laughs> once a week <laughs> <laughs> oh that yeah i feel like if i don't have access to email for like half a day i start to get nervous i can't right. even imagine what that feeling was like opening a brand new restaurant um, and then they, I mean, still, because everything's recorded because they, they're hoping to get something good for TV. So it was like my first week of phone calls. And they're like, all right, Justin, you get a phone call today. And I'm like, sweet, I got to call my girlfriend. She's going to kill me. Like she, I didn't know it was going to be this bad. So I was like, yeah, I'll be able to call you. Like I didn't get there. And they take your phones away. They take everything and nothing. So I'm like, all right, I got to call my girlfriend. She's going to freaking kill me. And they're like, nope, actually, we need you to call your business partner because we want to get some footage of how, <laughs> you know, of how the restaurant's going. And I'm like, if this airs, <laughs> she sees that I called freaking. Joe instead of her for my first phone call. Yeah, but it's gonna make good TV. It was, <laughs> honey, it was really, really good TV though. Like, it, well, um, and uh, once that filming is done and you're back, is, I assume it's another period of time where you can't tell anyone about it, and right. you just open a new restaurant. That's yep. got to be another crazy time. It was nuts. Yeah, I mean, just coming back in, getting straight. I mean, the restaurant had been open for almost a month, you know, without me. So coming right back in to try and you know. Get, uh, in, you know, get 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 uh, sorry familiar with the restaurant that is mine, but I haven't been there for a month, <laughs> you know, and then still knowing that again this this new news is going to come out in you know six months, so it's another weird long period, unbelievable. <laughs> and then, so your th- three to four years in restaurant ownership have been in terms of like your experience of going out onto these shows and coming back, and then twenty twenty is obviously a really fun year for restaurant <laughs> yeah. owners. You, so that was 2019 that Top Chef Correct. came out. Uh, it aired that year as well? Yep. What was it like after that? And then how did that lead into 2020 when we get into March and everything starts closing down? Yeah, I mean, that was, I mean, Top Chef is a much bigger stage than Iron Chef. I mean, you're on, it's not just one episode, you're on TV every single week. So, it, I mean, that was big. That that really kind of skyrocketed at least the, you know, the name recognition of, of, of me. Um so, I mean, 2019 was a great year. I mean, you know, expanded 
um, took over some operations for the Madison Restaurant Group, started running a lot of their restaurants. Um, we had closed Pearl and the Thief down in Stillwater because we were moving it downtown Minneapolis just because we needed bigger space. We needed to be closer to the city. Um, so we were just, you know, preparing for, you know, 2019 to kind of skyrocket everything in. Um, 2020 started great, and then, uh, here we are. Damn. Now, obviously, at Madison Restaurant Group, you've had to make some pretty difficult decisions right. this year. I'm curious, kind of the process that goes into those, because you've got Handsome Hog moves into the former space of the Fitz, yep. so away from that original location over to the Hill in St. Paul. Pearl and the Thief kind of had to put pause on building that out. Yep. How were these decisions approached, and how do you decide what to keep, what to move, what to put on pause? Yeah, I mean, it was a lot of decisions that that had to be made fast um, and also very calculated. I mean, you know, and nobody knew nobody knew in, you know, in March that we would even still be here now or what was going to happen. So it was, you know, trying not to overdo it and, you know, say the sky's falling and, you know, shut everything down and go hide, but also being smart and trying to figure out how to navigate it. So, you know, a lot of decisions were kind of made for me. I mean, you know, certain things were just made more sense than others. Um you know, since that, as far as Madison Group, I mean, I only took my handsome hog, um, and that's that's all that I'm currently running now. I stepped away from my role with the Madison Group. A lot of those restaurants, the buildings are shut down or are not going to reopen. So um, I just am doing handsome hog. Mm. Um, I have my quick service concepts over in um, the Potluck Food Hall, mm-hmm. the Chickpea Hummus Bar and Obachan out there, um, and then partnering with Brian and, and Sarah Ingram in that, and I'm the culinary director for the Purpose Driven Group. So with Woodfire Cantina and Happy Gnome, so helping those out with those guys. Um, but yeah, it was. I mean, it was tough. We had to close a lot of restaurants and lay a lot of people off. And because I was going to say that in my intro, I'm like, half this information is probably not accurate anymore right. because of just what this year has done to everything. Yep. And presumably, this is what led to you starting North Stands. Correct. Can, I I love the mission behind it, and I know even the mission of North Stands has shifted a bit since yep. its launch. Can you explain how you came to start it and what your mission is with that organization? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so it's uh, Northbound Creative um, as a company in town. Myself and, and David Fema um, just wanted to figure out a way to kind of circumvent all the the red tape and just really uh, get money directly back into the hands of these service workers without you know, having to go through all these crazy processes. We just wanted to fundraise and, you know, help help this industry people get through, get through. I mean, we're, the, the service industry is probably the biggest, most highly de- uh, decimated in- industry, you know, through this whole COVID. Um, so yeah, it just, it started just as a fundraising process, selling merchandise and any, anybody who works in the service industry in any capacity from restaurant owners to dishwashers to valet drivers to anything, um, you know, can go online out a quick application process just you know showing you're in the industry and we've been mailing out grants every single week as, as the as the funds come in um so yeah i mean it was it was an awesome thing to start and really helped a lot of people um and then really we've you know changed mission a little bit after the reopening started coming back and um you know stimulus checks started coming you know and then you know the george floyd situation happened and whatnot and we've really switched the mission to um not just strictly um any service industry, but now we're trying to do a bulk fund to help uh, uh, a female-owned or a, you know a person of color-owned restaurant really um, just fully operate. So we're yeah, seeing the role you've taken just within the Twin Cities has been really respectable because that, that was the first thought I had when I saw you forming this organization and the vo- uh, you know just having a voice during all of this and uh, obviously like your brother's company um, is Hybrid Nation has a big focus towards. Uh, 
how do I phrase it, representing underrepresented people. Exactly. And the first thought I had was, how does he have the time? Right. But also the like with so many things going on, it is, it's so easy to be like, well, I'm really busy. I've got restaurants that are closing. I've got right. problems. And to see you take that role during that time was just like, damn, if he can do it, we all have enough time to figure out how to make this thing work. Right. And so seeing you do that was just such an awesome way. And like, I really respect you for doing that because I can't imagine the stress you have been under during this time. That's like literally the restaurant industry possibly being hit the hardest. Right. But the way you've been able to prioritize how you are using your voice and using the, this like public name you've created through this like th- through the TV shows and hard work and just it's been really really cool. Yeah, I mean it was, you know, I mean, a you know serving and feeding. I mean that's all that I've done my whole life. So take you know taking that as not being able to operate and do that. I mean, shit, what else do I do? Um, you know, I just saw a, a community that that needed help and. You know, on a selfish level, it, it stopped me from, oh, you know, hyper focusing on my own problems because I, you know, really you had to come to a point where you're like, I don't have control of any of these things. I mean, once, you know, we got over the hump of, you know, of really just bitching about it, you're like, there's nothing that there's nothing that I can do about this right now. Like I have zero control. Um, so, you know, to keep my mind off focusing on that, you know, and to put that energy into into a good place and then help some other people get through it. And again, as I referenced at the beginning of the show, somehow during all of this, <laughs> you've got a show coming out on True TV called yes. Fast Foodies. Yes. What the hell? <laughs> uh, yeah, this is an I mean, this is an exciting show. One that I'm super excited about. A because it's a hosting gig. I mean, you know, we're not. No, I'm not getting kicked off. I'm there the whole time. It's my show, so that's so that's fun. I thought um, you kind of like showing up, not knowing if you're going to get fired. It's like yeah, right. from day one, it's been like your entire career, right? <laughs> um, yeah, this is actually a show that got cast for I think last February. And then it was supposed to um, film in April, and then uh, that after COVID, the, that mm. got shut down. We didn't even know if the show was going to get greenlit. Um, How did you get involved in in the show? Was it something that you were part of from the start, or you got brought in as it was being concepted? I got brought in as it was being concepted. So the show concept had been created, and they were looking for a third host. And phone rang again. <laughs> Just, I don't know how these people are getting my number, but. <laughs> um, so yeah, it was that, that was super cool. So I was put on pause for most of COVID, and then got a call that Hollywood was back up and running, and I had to come out to LA. Excuse me. Uh, now this show sounds. I'm really pumped about it. Can yeah. you explain the concept of the show? Because I think it is so sick. It's it's. I mean, it is. It's going to be fun. It's like no other food competition show out there because it's really not. I mean, it's it it's competition in the lowest you know sense of the word. I mean, it's all about comedy and antics. I mean, it's very lowbrow stoner TV. It's <laughs> hilarious. Um, but concept is uh, myself, uh, Kristen Kish, and Jeremy Ford, both who were previous um, Top Chef winners. Um, we invite our celebrity friend over to our closed restaurant, you know, after hours, and they bring in their favorite fast food or guilty pleasure or frozen dinner, just whatever shit food they eat on the road. Um, they had amazing comedians like Bob, Bobby Lee and Fortune Feimster and Joel McHale and you know, they would bring this, you know, the cheesy gordita crunch and us three would have, you know, two rounds. Our first round <laughs> is try and copy this to a T so that Bobby Lee, he couldn't tell which one came from Taco Bell or not. Like, how mm. can you make this look exactly and taste exactly like Taco Bell? Um, second round is now take those flavor profiles, turn it into a fine dining dish. Or like, how would you put this on your menu at your restaurant? Take all the flavors and come up with something completely different. 
And how is the, you know, quote unquote winner chosen for each show? Is it the guest? Yeah. So the guest, I mean, the, you know, the guest picks their favorite and there's, you know, a big trophy and there's always a, a weird consequence at the end of the game where the, the, you know, the losers have to do something stupid, cover themselves <laughs> in syrup or, it's, I mean, it's, <laughs> it is, it's, it's a comedy show. <laughs> That's hilarious. I, uh, that's so funny because like um, I know here like locally Anomalies they do their like McDonald's pickup right. where they're yep. making like Big Macs and you're seeing this thing and um, I was just talking about this with Brian that I was like it kind of makes sense in a weird way that like I'm not going to deny that like fast food meals are good right but they're made with like kind of shitty ingredients yep. so it is this thing it's like can you make the same thing that already tastes good right in, in approaching a fast food dish do you have to like dumb down your culinary skills to try to match it exactly <laughs> i mean yes and no i think the biggest thing that it proves is i mean really how difficult it is to achieve the consistency that some of the i think we yes not all of them are made with great ingredients but a lot are these days yeah. um but I mean, achieving that consistency of just realizing that I can go to any McDonald's in the world and this burger tastes the same, you know, or just, I mean, all of that. I mean, from a chef's perspective, we're looking at it and we're like, oh, I can make this shitty thing. And we're like, wow, this is really difficult. I mean, there is <laughs> science behind this fast food that allows them to make it so fast, so consistent and so cheap. Yeah, it's like back in my beer days at Sam Adams. It's like, yeah, Budweiser is not a good beer, but it is potentially the most difficult beer to, to brew make, and right. they're doing it on an international exactly. scale. So like the brewers over there are insanely skilled to right. make a product that like is, you know, okay. Exactly. <laughs> There's a place for it. Exactly. Um, but yeah, it was so fun. It was, I think it was, it's the show that I think everybody needs right now. I mean, this you know, Top Chef's fun, but it's, I mean, people who are really into it, I mean, they are, you know, nail biters just stressed sitting on the, you know, waiting for this. So I think just having something that's no pressure, low brow, we can laugh about it. Everybody can relate to it. Everybody's eating a cheeseburger, you know, and it's just, it'll be, I think it'll be good for people just to de-stress a little bit. All right. I'm going to wrap it up on a couple of questions here. Yep. First one is like, what's it been like being like a, a public figure, like you know, you're trying to like cook in the kitchen and I imagine you're trying to like actually just do your job and people are probably like, Hey, can you, I want a picture or whatever. What's it, what's it been like? Is it, is it something that like you're more grateful for? Is it, does it get annoying at times? How do you handle being recognized probably pretty frequently? Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, been, I mean, it's been a roller coaster of trying to figure, I mean, figuring out how to deal with it. Um, a, you know, not taking myself or it too seriously, you know, realizing that, you know, I'm still, still me, still just cooking food and, you know, I've, happen to have done something that people recognize it for. Um, but it's also a lot of gratitude. I mean, it, I wouldn't be, you know, my, my restaurants wouldn't be doing what mm -hmm. they're doing and I wouldn't have these opportunities if, you know, without people enjoying it to some capacity. So definitely truly grateful. I don't, I never get annoyed. I'm always available for a picture, uh, you know, or a handshake back in the day or, <laughs> or a hug when we could do that. But no, I, I very much appreciate it. Um, it's been a learning curve, uh, but it's also just staying, you know, just staying humble and keeping it all in perspective. I mean, you know, the the highs the highs can be high but the lows can be equally as low so as long as you you know keep everything on an even playing field and and remember where you came from and why you're there um you know that's that's what I try and tell myself every day and then the last question I've been asking this uh just recently of chefs that come on what if you had to have only one utensil besides a knife in the kitchen what would it be for you Ooh, besides a knife yeah I just started adding that because everybody's like a knife and I was like all right but besides that I mean Oof, I don't know. A spoon, a good spoon. What size spoon are we talking here? Like a soup spoon or like a big spoon? No, like a like a like a soup spoon. A good like saucing plating spoon. I think 
every chef has like their favorite spoon. It just has the right weight, the perfect amount, you know, size of cup, and you can, <laughs> add, yeah, the, a good spoon. We have the same thing in the coffee world. Yeah. We have cupping spoons, and it's yeah. like, I, no, yeah, like that, no, that, not that one. That one's like a little bit shallow. It doesn't splash against the palate quite the exactly. same. It's got to be and that. When you one. find that perfect spoon, I mean, that's more valuable than your knife, chefs. That's awesome. Well, I really appreciate you coming on. I know you're insanely busy, so I'm like really pumped that you're able to make it on. And I can't wait to see Fast Foodies and to see how we can't get ourselves out of this whole 2020 year uh, on the up and up. Absolutely, man. I really appreciate you having me. It's Thanks been a for blast. Com- I will end it like I do every other episode and say have a nice day. Yeah.